Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, joingelt.com. Dot com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have, a, we have an amazing founder. I think that we're really going to be enjoying the conversation with him. He's built a scaled finance, exited companies, and he's been starting companies since he was in, fi in fifth grade, which is like absolutely unbelievable. I mean, some of those companies, or I would say initiatives, you know, were very... Um, very funny, actually, and we're going to be covering them. But uh, but again, you know, very inspiring his story, and I'm sure that you're all going to very much enjoy it. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Chase Garbarino. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, big fan. Thanks for having me on. So so give us a little of a walk through memory lane, born in Connecticut. How was life growing up? Life was uh, life was good. You know, I was uh, I was very fortunate to have been born into a entrepreneurial family. My, uh, my father's father came over from Italy and had started all sorts of different uh, little enterprises. He started a fruit importing business. He ran a package store. Uh, he ran those old vending machines where you could get cigarettes out of. I think he did better in the vice businesses than the fruit business. Uh, but the, the entrepreneurial gene uh, was in my, in my family. My father uh, had started in venture capital in the eighties, uh, very, very early before it was really kind of a, you know, a, a bigger thing and then moved on to the operating side. He liked running things a lot better. Uh, so he did, uh, he did a furniture company and then he got into healthcare services businesses where he had a, a good entrepreneurial career. And I was lucky to, he would bring me along to a bunch of things and I could kind of watch his, uh, his battles growing up, uh, and learn from him, which was great. And what was it like to see those battles, you know, the ups and downs and, and more than anything, you know, that, that roller coaster of emotions that you go through as an entrepreneur? Yeah. I mean, look, I got, I got uh, a, the best education you could get because I, I got to watch my father, you know, he, he IPO'd a company in the 80s that was a furniture company that had one manufacturer um, that went bankrupt in the savings and loan. So, you know, he went from all the way up here to down here and nothing uh, other than kind of you know, supply chain issues. And he had to start from scratch and build something new. So uh, I think I was fortunate 
you know, a lot of times we only cover the cover the successes and we learn about the success. And I think seeing how hard it was, you know, set me up in ways that that have been pretty helpful in in my career and uh, learn, learning from his journey was huge. So at what point do you really get into the whole entrepreneurial thing, knowing that you're going to, you know, go at it, you know, eventually? Because, I mean, you started with your own projects in fifth grade. So what the hell were you doing in fifth grade? What kind of mentality did you have there going on? Yeah, you know, I've always I always hated school. That's for sure. Uh, class was brutal for me. Um, you know, I uh, in fifth grade, I kind of became fascinated just with like selling stuff, making money. I don't know. It was it was something that came the that was always interesting to me, kind of innately. And so there, for anybody who is a child of the '80s, there was this playground game called Pogs, where you know kids would stack these cardboard things and you would hit them with a slammer and you flip them and uh you know pogs were all the rage but i wasn't interested really in playing them i had my mother bring me to the store so i would buy them in bulk and sell them to kids on the playground so uh that was my technically my first entrepreneurial venture when i was in in fifth grade uh when we had moved and then it just it just went from there you just kept going you know even even doctor's notes huh what what what, what was that yeah. So anybody who was in high school back when I was in high school, you know, like the 90s, early 2000s, you know, there was there was a policy. I, we had moved to Massachusetts. And if you were late to school, uh, you couldn't couldn't play uh, on sports teams or do any extracurricular activities. I played a bunch of sports. So um, I was one of three kids who was taking computer science at the time. And I figured out uh, how to get into some file servers that had doctor's notes of local doctors and uh, started selling doctor's notes that how kids chose to use those was up to them. Um, luckily, my, I, have a, I have a very disciplined and strict mother who kind of smacked me around and said, like, there's a lot of good energy here, but let's focus it on things that, you know, won't get you wildly in trouble. Um, so that that was in a high school enterprise that I had that I made some pretty good money on, uh, but luckily came to an end before before it resulted in anything too bad. Well, in your in your case, you know, though, when when you really kick it on the high gear is in college. So you go there to study economics to Hamilton, and uh, there is where you get really going on uh, on your first business. So your first business, you know, while you were in Hamilton, you know, that was Campus Ward which was a user-generated, you know, type of um, uh, platform or website. And you guys were monetizing in the good old days, you know, with the ads, with AdWords and, and so forth. But, but also was, a, you know, a pretty interesting approach. And, uh, and I'm sure that uh, you were turning some heads there. So how was that experience? Now you had your co-founder, you know, your, your team around you, you know, doing this thing. So how was that like? What, what was that journey like? Yeah, so I was still doing, you know, I was always interested in technology and I had been reading magazines. This is around 2004, 2005. People will remember back then collegehumor.com was was a pretty big success and I was kind of looking at this like user-generated content model. And so, you know, a good friend of mine at Hamilton, Kevin McCarthy, who sadly I traditionally took computer science. He was just a chem major, but he's a lot smarter than I am. So I convinced him to learn how to code. And, uh, you know, we, we started a, a platform called Campus Word where we reached out 
you know, we built the platform, reached out to about 500 schools and said, we're the New York Times of college publications. And we waited and we ended up getting, you know, hundreds of students, you know, producing content for the platform. There was an ad network at the time called AdBright, where you could just make pretty good fees on link ads on the website, you know, based on views and clicks. So we were making some pretty good money. Um, I had some other angles on the on the venture where I was importing ping pong balls from China and selling them to different schools and things like that. So, um, you know, we, again, it's like kind of a dog chasing cars. We would come up with an idea and we'd pursue it, but it grew to a point where you know, some of the content on the platform was getting picked up and we were getting calls by CNN and Fox News and different, you know, the media climate was a little bit more tame back then. But, you know, there's some content that they would call us up and say, you know, hey, you have this position, come talk to us. We're, we don't even know the students writing this content. We're like 19, 20 years old. Uh, so it was, uh, it got, it got a lot of notoriety and it was cool to see all the students that wrote for it are now all, you know, working in you know, pretty high up in media. So it's a really interesting platform for, for a while there. So how did that uh, transition into American Inno? Because American Inno ended up like the, uh, like more like the serious, you know, first venture, you know, where you guys, where you guys did the full cycle. How did, how did that transition happen? Yeah. So when we were doing Campus Word, we didn't have a business plan. We didn't have like we didn't even know what an exit was. We weren't like thinking of it that way. It was more let's do something fun and cool. And if we're making money on it, great. So we ended up actually giving the we we ran the platform and gave it to students to run themselves. We should have sold it to a college marketing agency, but I didn't even know that college marketing agencies existed. So again, it was more like we did it because we found it enjoyable. And then, you know, we started to get a little bit wiser than we were. And, you know, with American Inno, we really kind of saw at the time Huffington Post was having a lot of success creating this new media model that was user generated content. And, you know, native advertising was kind of the, the theme that they had created and we had gotten to know some of the some of the folks on the technology side that ran Huffington Post and they were coaching us on like hey there's an opportunity to do something similar but really go after local media you know they were very much kind of national um so we we built technology to try to cater to kind of like the local media audience we thought we could do a better job than you know local newspapers and a lot of the traditional media businesses um, so it was kind of one part ad tech, one part publishing platform and ran that kind of found our niche and really B2B business, uh, content and focus. And we ended up selling it, uh, in 2012, a couple of years after we graduated to advanced publications, which is owned by the Newhouse family. They own Condé Nast, they own a bunch of, uh, newspapers they had recently, you know, owned uh, Discovery Channel until it got sold to Warner's. So big kind of family-owned media conglomerate. How much money had you guys raised prior to the acquisition? We had only raised about $2 million. So, you know, we graduated from Hamilton in 2007. And uh, one of the best things, you know, and I think a consistent theme, right? I got to, I got to watch my father go through the savings and loan. Kevin, myself, and then we brought on our third co-founder, Greg Gomer, who I grew up with and had gone to Babson College. Uh, we went and tried to raise money in 08, 09, uh, 2010, right after the great financial crisis. So we kind of 
we cut our teeth at a time that was brutal to raise capital, particularly in Boston, where we're located. And it was very much known for enterprise technology, not anything, you know, internet or, you know, that we famously lost Facebook and Airbnb from the Boston area. They went, went out West because they couldn't raise funding in Boston. So um, we had to, we had to get beaten up pretty badly uh, to, to get those $2 million. But turned out to be a good thing because we didn't overcapitalize the business, which for our category ended up being important. And then, you know, it was, uh, uh, it benefited us in terms of, you know, how to, how to kind of run the capital markets process of company building, you know, in hard times, which I think is super valuable to learn. So the other lesson learned is that the companies are not sold. They are bought. What do you mean with that? Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of folks and, you know, I'm an angel investor now and I talk to entrepreneurs all the time and they kind of have this idea of, you know, hey, this company is in this space and they're bigger and we're going to sell our company to them. And it's just really not how it works. Um, you know, it, it ties back to some of my pursuits earlier where, you know, we tend to have the most success when we're pursuing something that we're interested in and we found you know, something that we think the world needs rather than building something to sell. And so you know, part of uh, our exit with American Inno was that you know, an advisor to our business connected us to some of the executives at Advanced Publications, uh, specifically at the American City Business Journal's operating unit within the company. And we developed a relationship with the people there. We never ran a formal process. You know, there was a lot of complimentary things about what we're doing. We shared a lot of the vision, like they had certain infrastructure and scale that we didn't. We had certain, you know, technology chops that they needed to transition from kind of traditional, but it was pretty organic, right? And you know, I've watched a lot of folks kind of show up on the doorstep trying to sell their company, which is not what we were doing. Um, and, you know, we ended up having a great exit at a good time where we got out of, you know, a, a category that, you know, became harder and harder in terms of display and native advertising. It's be not a tough space to be in post 2012. So, um, you know, I, I think that sometimes you'd rather be lucky than good. And I think we got pretty lucky that that's how the process ended up running for us there. But we learned an important lesson that, you know, um, you don't you don't typically like plan to sell things. Some people can pull it off, but it's just very hard to execute a strategy like that. Now for you, after the transaction got closed, you received the phone call from the other guy that was under Corp Dev team and he was a pro and uh, he kind of like invited you to the office and walked you, you know, through which areas, you know, could have been a little bit more improved on your end. I mean, you, you were just 26. So, you know, obviously, you know, a, a lot in front of you to learn. And it was obviously the first transaction too. But, but how was that like? Yeah. So Andrew Siegel, I have to give a shout out to Andrew because Andrew beat me up pretty good in the deal negotiations. You know, Andrew's uh, pedigree was, he, you know, he was very high up in Corp Dev at GE. He's very high up at Corp Dev at Yahoo. And then he ran Corp Dev for Advance for a while. So this was an experienced guy uh, who had was probably working on a litany of deals at one time. Um, and when we closed the deal, uh, they had just moved into the you know One World Trade you know, in Lower Manhattan. They were the first tenant in the building. So it was kind of this crazy experience where I'd never been to that property. And 
you know, I'm, I'm up on a floor. I'm not, I don't think I'd ever been that high up in a nice tower like that. You know, we had been grinding it out in some, you know, lesser office spaces. And he just walked me in and I wasn't totally sure what we were going to talk about. And he was just like, here are the things I did in the no- negotiations where I, you know, I kicked your ass, basically. He didn't say it that way. But, and he taught me a bunch of lessons. And it was, you know, at the time I was kind of sitting there like, oh my God, like I didn't know like all these, you know, uh, tactics and things like that. But he's, you know, it was the best thing that, that one of the best things I've, that happened to me in my career in terms of just, you know, uh, it's paying dividends in terms of the learning experience. So I really appreciated kind of how he had, uh, you know, he, he helped us out afterwards just by investing in, in us kind of as a founding team as individuals. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. So then after the transaction was done and you guys, you know, did the transition and, and all that stuff, then, you know, it was time to to think about what was next. And obviously, you know, you starting things since fifth grade, you know, you were not going to stop. So what happened next? Yeah. So we ended up staying on for almost four years with advance and we had a really good run. They, you know, the, the company expanded within the advance empire still to this day, you know, Kevin and I are call are another college roommate of ours still runs the, runs the company for them, which is cool. But naturally, you know, we got the, uh, once it got kind of pretty well integrated into the, into the mothership, you know, we got the itch to start something new. So we've been, uh, we had gotten funded by Jeff Fagnan and Ryan Moore, who run Accomplice, which is a VC out of Boston. Uh, they had formerly been known as Atlas Venture. Um, and we just went back to them. We had a good first run with American Inno and said, hey, we're going to start something new. And they said, what? Uh, we don't really know, but we're going to do something. So you know, they incubated us out of their office. And we had these like loose ideas around kind of a software platform for business community, um, which, you know, we built a bunch of things that nobody needed on uh, B1, B2, and just were kind of chasing an idea with them. Uh, And they were, uh, luckily, uh, we were, we found some guys that were patient and let us kind of find our way to, you know, ultimately what became HQO and, you know, what we're, what we're working on now. So uh, incubating, I mean, that's interesting that you guys get together and it's like, hey, we don't know what we're going to do, but uh, let's see what what happens. So so how is that process of, you know, just like having like a completely empty canvas and just like throwing stuff at it until something, you know, clicks and you're like, OK, I think that this is it. Yeah, I mean, I th- you know, there's there's a couple of different 
you know, there's no one playbook. I think when people try to come up with this one playbook on how you start a company, that doesn't work because the only playbook that works is what's authentic, I think, to the founding team. And, you know, we're we're a curious bunch of people um, that, you know, we're just we love building things and we kind of naturally find it, you know, have found our way to, I think, areas of our interests, the problems we want to solve and the accomplice folks, you know, really have the same DNA, but on the other side of the table from a, you know, capital perspective where you know, they're not, they're not later stage, you know, they'll, they'll play there, but where their bread and butter and where they're really interesting work happens is kind of on formation and working with founders for the full life cycle. So, you know, it was, it was one of the most fun times of my career because we were sitting in their office. They had some other startups that were trying to kick around, find ideas. So it was just high density of talent sitting there in Cambridge, Massachusetts and late nights and uh, a lot of whiteboarding sessions on, you know, what the world needed and what the world didn't. Uh, and that's kind of how, how we got our start with HQO. So then let's talk about that moment where this is it. Let's go. Yeah. So, you know, we had done, we took a crack at like a B2B marketplace. We had done this like kind of B2B concierge thing and like nothing was sticking, but we had built all these kind of interesting features. And it was you know, the back half of 2017 when WeWork had gotten their, you know, astronomical valuation from SoftBank. And a lot of the folks that we had been dealing with in version one of what became HQO were in commercial real estate. And from our time at Advanced Publications, they had a big commercial real estate advertising business. So we had always been fascinated with commercial real estate because, you know, it's a real estate is the largest asset class in the world, much bigger than, you know, publicly traded equities. So, you know, just from an asset class perspective, it's a massive category. And then when we started kind of looking at what WeWork was doing, you know, we're like, this is fascinating because everybody says they're a tech company, but they're not a tech company. They're a real estate services business that's masquerading and trading as a tech company. And commercial real estate fundamentally is just a laggard when it comes to digital adoption. And so, you know, when we looked at other hard asset businesses, so transportation, what Uber and Lyft did, and hospitality, what Airbnb did, they didn't come in and lease arbitrage the hard asset, which is what work we work was doing. And I think there's a very viable business, actually, you know, despite all the challenges that we work has gone through. But we kind of saw this opportunity where it's like, look, you have an app for your car, you have an app for your bank, the way you interact with things happens through through software, predominantly mobile. And we spend all this time at buildings, right? Um, and there's no way to interact with all the different workflows of property. And that's kind of how we we kind of had the light bulb moment, went to accomplice guys and said, this is the this is the thing. And they said, look, if you can sell it to landlords who are a brutal category to sell into, you know, we'll fund it. And so they said, sell one, we'll fund it. And Q1 of 2018, we sold four landlords and off to the races we went. Wow. So then what's the uh, ultimately the business model? How do you guys make money? Yeah. So uh, 81% of our revenue comes from landlord clients. You know, now we're, we're larger. So we sell into a couple of different customer segments, but really anybody who's in, uh, in the business of operating real estate, right? So um, we sell them a platform so that they can facilitate a great customer experience at their buildings. And, you know, they, they pay a base platform fee and then they pay for the amount of users that end up uh, coming to their properties and using the platform. 
And so far for the for the company, how much capital have you guys raised that is uh, publicly disclosed? Yeah, it's about 150 million today. And how has it been the journey? I mean, obviously, it sounds like the you know you guys had it a little bit easier this time around. I mean, not only because you guys were successfully exited founders, but then also because you were in you know incubated by this you know VC uh, firm, and they were able to see you you know from from day from day zero pretty much. So. How has it been, you know, going from the, you know, early days to, you know, to all the way up until now raising money? Yeah, I mean, there was uh, 2017, 18, when we started working with Accomplice, it was, it was definitely different than 20, 2009, 2010, 2011. So, you know, when you make, when you make folks some money, that helps immensely. That obviously helped. We obviously also were in a much you know, better market for venture capital and fundraising than we were after the great financial crisis. Um, and the, you know, the track record in relationship, right? Like, uh, you know, another VC who good lesson that I learned from said, you know, we invest in lines, not dots, right? They see you at one point in time, it's a dot. But when they see you in multiple points in time, they can start to see the line on whether you're somebody who sticks with it and makes progress. And so we have kind of a line relationship with you know, our, our set of investors from the first company, but, you know, we're, we kind of hit the market at a time where we work was really adversarial with a lot of the real estate community. So our, our kind of first momentum was by saying, you know, you need your own customer platform to collect data on how people are using your properties. And it was a bull market, everybody was making a ton of money in real estate. So you know, all right, let's try something innovative. We got kind of our first initial customers that way. And we were very lucky that we closed our Series B financing December of 2019 that was led by Insight Partners, you know, a top five kind of global technology investor. Because when we walked into our first board meeting with them in April of 2020, we were all locked down and the world changed. So they just made an investment in you know, a company that's selling real estate to offices and governments around the world wouldn't let people go to offices. So it went from some smooth sailing to very quickly back to rough waters. Um, so that was, uh, um, it's felt fitting for our journey because it's, you know, just seems to be the environment that we operate in. And and how, how has it been like, for example, like going through those murky waters too with investors, you know, like, how do you how do you go about that? How do you how do you deal with you know board meetings you know in 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 such a tough you know environment like you guys were in you know like I mean COVID you know was pretty uncertain especially given the business that you guys are operating. So I'm sure you know it took a lot to to keep pushing things through. Yeah, um, this is where I got lucky. Just again, kind of seeing how my father operated growing up, where you know not a lot of people have someone who's gone through. A couple decades of board meetings, so I got I got to take some of his lessons. And he, you know, he hit me up very quickly and was like brutal transparency right up front, like all the dirty laundry, don't hide anything. So you know, I've got a pretty good cadence where every single board person gets a call, gets a run through before we even do the board meeting, so nobody's walking into surprises. Like we. We put an immense amount of time and investment into the board relationships, which I think some entrepreneurs uh, sometimes underutilize, you know, uh, how, how to work with a board and how to manage a board. So I think we've we've gained a lot of credibility because we've, you know, we've been able to 
you know, essentially 10x our revenue from December 2019 to now. And I think a lot of our investors, when COVID hit, thought we were dead. And so we managed to both share very openly some of the challenges because there are a ton of challenges when people can't go to buildings for our software category. Uh, but then we've also found ways to to grow and really create a category of software that didn't exist before. Uh, so you know that that was critical, and we also tapped into you know the real estate market. It's inherently an investor business, and so we brought a lot of capital partners in from the real estate world. So we brought industry expertise. We diversified our capital sources at a time when you know more more folks that you can draw on for capital the better. Um, and it took a lot of calories, but uh, it's it's paid off uh, for where we are now. And also, you guys are big on office culture. You know, tell us about this. Yeah, we were one of the first companies to bring people back, and you know, part of part of it is you know, look, it's our it's our product, obviously, and you gotta you kind of gotta believe in what you do. But um, I'm also somebody who just believes in showing up, and I think there's something kind of special about working with people in person. I think the um, how you empathize, how you learn from people, just, you know, the it, dating back throughout human history, innovation has always clustered. So whether it was the Renaissance in Europe, or it was the Industrial Revolution in Birmingham, and then under the Connecticut area here, auto revolution, Detroit, internet revolution, Silicon Valley, media finance, fashion in New York, life sciences in Cambridge, like, there's some energy about talented people bouncing off of each other that tends to drive, you know, innovation and economic progress. And so the, you know, the business we're in is, you know, we're trying to build something really new and innovative and uh, you just cannot replace uh, in-person interaction. And so, you know, I've got a lot of friends that love uh, remote work and sitting at home and, you know, it's not really a, a moral thing, like good for them. I, I, I'm, I'm in judgment of no one, but I fundamentally believe that, you know, I want to work with people who want to be around their teammates and I believe in what comes out of it. And it's not just for the good of the company. I think it helps people progress in their careers in a lot of interesting ways. But I think for, you know, for a lot of leaders right now, there's this, uh, particularly as capital becomes scarce, culture debt is a real thing. And so you always have these people that good people, talented people, but if they don't believe and they're more mercenary than missionary, you know, that that will always catch up to you in hard times. And so I think the, you know, one of the most important lessons that I've learned throughout my career, and I used to screw this up, is that kind of the the mission fit and the culture fit, it's 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 an absolute must have when the market gets tough. You know, you can in bull markets and zero interest rate environments when capital is free, you know, you can skip it, but you really can't skip it if you're trying to build something that endures. You have to have people that are aligned with the culture and the mission. Um, and again, I don't think I think people conflate it too much to, you know, judgment of there's no one right way to work. Right. That's the nice thing about having a diverse economy, like different strokes for different folks. But uh, I think when you're building building a company as an entrepreneur, you know, there you cannot overemphasize culture fit. So let's let's talk about this uh, real quick here because obviously we're talking about people, we're talking about uh, investors, we're talking about employees, and obviously, you know, what's what's happening now uh with the with the environment. If let's talk about the vision. Let's say you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of the company is fully realized. What does that world look like? 
Yeah. So whether it's 2030, 2040, 2050, whatever the time scale, but you know, we we've been talking about smart cities for a really long time and it's just a buzzword and like a glimmer, right? But when you think about more and more of our cities are being connected to the internet. Our buildings, different components of our buildings, like are starting to be connected to the internet. And you know, a software platform that really helps facilitate your experience of interacting with the built environment just doesn't exist. And so, really, kind of having a remote control for how you interact with your city or any city that you go to, you know, that's ultimately the manifestation for the consumer of what a you know a smart city platform would deliver. And, Know, really a frictionless, seamless experience across cities. And I do think that cities are humanity's greatest product. Um, that's ultimately the platform that we're building. So now let's say I put you, you know, into a time machine. So let's talk about the past, but with a lens of reflection. And I bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that time where you were still in college in Hamilton. And you're able to have a sit down with that younger self. And you are able to give that younger self one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, uh, I think the the one piece of advice I would give to myself is focus, right? Like I, th I think too often when things get hard, you're closer to success than you think. And, you know, when if a rocket is off by one degree, it can land in the ocean. If you're just one degree to the left, you can have a successful takeoff. And I think, you know, endurance and stamina and kind of gritting it out when everything feels like it's broken, you can't get that funding, you can't get that customer, like, I would say you tend to be closer than you think. And this game usually comes down to who can endure most, you know, you need a, you need a certain baseline intelligence. But I, I think most people who are, who are in this game are, are smart enough. It's, it's can you can you weather the storm? And so, you know, focus, 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 small adjustments, incrementalism, always important. But um, you're usually not as not as far off as you think. That's amazing. Now, for the people that are listening, Chase, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, you can find me uh, on Twitter, Seagarb. Uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn, and I'm always open to talking to entrepreneurs. So, cg at hbo.co is my email, and I love to you know, love kicking around ideas and at least teaching people what I learned what not to do, uh, which I have plenty of those lessons. Amazing. Well, easy enough. So, Chase, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So, also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.